So we are going to have a time for discussion until uh, 5.30 or uh, 5.15, okay. So what I suggest is uh, let's take three questions. So please your questions, uh, keep your questions short, identify yourself and to whom do you, uh, you are directing the, the question. So our first round of three and if we have more time, another round of three. Amar, could you please share with us some of the conclusion of the paper that we could not hear? <laughs> <laughs> okay, yes. Gary Srinivasan with CCIC. John, I appreciated so much um, the overview of Canadian initiatives to date and the indication of Canadian leadership in the context of G20 commitments to funding the IFIs. Earlier today, we heard a lot of debate and discussion about the importance of issues of governance and reform at the IFIs and recognizing these are, these are political discussions, but if, could you characterize uh, Canada's position with respect to the strong demands that have come to restructure vo voice and vote at the IFIs? There's a discussion about an expansion of quotas uh, at the IMF and, and uh, a very strong um, thought that as the G20 takes on new roles, it's an important time to think innovatively about um, how to change uh, sort of democratically and on governance terms, decision-making uh, at these institutions. And it'd be good to hear how Canada's approaching those, those questions of governance at the institutions. Yeah, uh, Bill Morton from the North-South Institute. A question for Amar. Um, Amar, I'm wondering whether you could talk a bit about bilateral aid. Um, to what extent is bilateral aid important in responding to the crisis? Is it, is it in fact a factor at all? Um, and given that we've been talking about the crisis as an opportunity for reform, um, if bilateral aid is a factor, uh, does the crisis provide an opportunity for reforming um, bilateral aid? Rules go in both directions, so I'm going to ask the panelists please keep the answers short and we have more time for uh, questions. Uh, Amar? You sure you don't want to go to the others first? <laughs> okay, yeah, 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 yeah sorry. Yes, good. Yeah. Um, on the voice issue, yeah, so uh, I'll just maybe talk about the World Bank because I don't work directly on the IMF voice issue right now, but at least in the World Bank, I'm, I'm not sure, I, w I didn't put it on my to-do list, but it is on my to-do list because I'm a, the Development Committee deputy for, for Canada right now. Um, and, and, and it is a lot of my time. I, I'm not sure I agree with Amar on, on how to characterize the importance of this. I, I, I agree it's symbolically important. Um, I, there's a lot more discussions ahead. They're not fun discussions by any means. Um, but we have bought into an important principle. We've bought into the principle that economic weight should be the basis of shareholding. When you look at the Pittsburgh uh, communique, it agrees that economic weight should be the basis, and this should be reviewed regularly, I believe, every five years. So right now, the voting weight is 44% developing and transition economies, 56% uh, developed countries. So. We've already agreed to cross the parity line. The issue is when. When, how, and the when is decided, the slope on the curve towards parity is decided on the exact formula that you choose. So whether it's in two years, five years, or ten years, we've agreed to, uh, to cross that line. And I think that's a very important thing. That's why I'd much rather get uh, attention on the capital increase discussion, but I think 
I'm totally naive here, and I know this is going to be a long debate. And uh, my only comment on the IMF, I think there is a little less interest from ministers on the bank because the first round of IMF was so acrimonious that I think ministers are getting tired of talking about voice around formulas and so on. Thank you. Am I? Uh, let, me, uh, let me pick up on that last point. Um, I think economic weight, in fact, should be the dominant variable. But it's not clear why in a development institution it should only be one dollar, one vote. What about one country, one vote, which is the basic votes idea? And why not one person, one vote? So I think it's true that inside the corridors it has been decided. But I think this issue is too important to just say it has been decided. Uh, the second thing I would say is that it's extremely important for a development institution to recognize the role of contributions and the role of borrowers and clients, especially the poorest. And that is, by the way, another thing that has been agreed upon, but what has not been agreed upon is the details of it. So I didn't show you the figures, but I have developed a formula, which is a World Bank-specific formula, which says, okay, let's go with the dominant economic weight, but let's take these other things into account. And what that does is it gives a stake in the institution for the poorest countries, for those countries for whom the bank makes a difference. It recognizes the importance of IDA, but it recognizes that IDA is not the sole contribution to the business of the bank. And it's important to have a open, transparent, broad-based discussion of this issue. So I'm perfectly prepared to put my numbers out there, and I would encourage that there be some broad discussion of it. But let me tell you why the quota formula, which has often been used, particularly by the Europeans, as a benchmark is completely inappropriate. If you use the quota formula, all of sub-Saharan Africa would have a weight in the World Bank of 2% despite the fact that it's the continent of the greatest importance to the mission of the bank. If you use the quota formula, 120 of the 140 developing countries would be overrepresented in the World Bank even before reform. If you use the quota formula, you would get a country like Luxembourg, which on a good day has a population of 400,000, depending on the number of tourists, have a quota formula, I mean, have a formula weight that is greater than that of Argentina with a population of 40 million. So it's not enough to say, well, you know, we have a quota formula that suits us, and, you know, I do think that the starting point has to be what's the mission of these institutions? Based on the mission, what should be the principles of governance? Based on those principles, what should be the best indicators that reflect the governance structure? And there should be an honest, open, intellectual debate about it. And you know, in a sense, if you did that debate, you would come to the conclusion that developing countries should have a majority stake in the World Bank, not tomorrow, not day after, but today. Now, maybe it's not feasible today, but let's then say that's a political agreement. Let's not say that the dominant weight in a development institution only should be economic weight. On that basis, Africa wouldn't count in this institution. Oh, on the bilateral aid, sorry. I, I, I just one, one word on the bilateral aid. 
yes, this is, a, I think, an issue which um, in some sense requires a lot of, of attention, as does, as, as Joe Marie said, uh, the role of China. China provides more financing in Africa for infrastructure than all of the Western donors, the World Bank and the, and the African Development Bank put together. So, you know, in some sense, the whole issue of bilateral aid and debt sustainability is a very important issue. And in some sense, in this crisis, as actually, because of all the pressures we, we heard about, has not gotten as much attention as it should. In the response to the crisis, it's another you know, striking fact is that the IMF has put more money on the table than all of the concessional windows of the MDBs put together. It's not known very much, but that's the magnitude of the fund actually has done more. And all of the money that the multilateral development banks have been put together, as John pointed out, has been front-loading. It's borrowing from the future. There hasn't been real additionality until now. Okay, thank you. So we have uh, time for another round of questions. You said you, you'd allow three questions, so maybe I can ask three questions. Yeah. No, I'm, ki I'm kidding. Um, I do want to get back to, well, stick on this, this subject of, of governance um, and just pick up a point that um, the Gemma made yesterday that at the founding of the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, if he's, he's correct about his history, the purpose was that, you know, Europe would get a huge weight in there because it needed to borrow the most. So, you know, if we talk about parity, um, we need to talk about equality as well and, and needs. And don't we need to think more about not just sort of economic weight, but but need and restructure the whole governance system along the lines of what countries actually need to borrow. And right now, you know, that whole system is, is stacked, stacked against those developing countries. So that's sort of one issue to raise there, and I'd be interested to hear John's response to that. Um, also, just maybe this is unfair, but on the, the last slide that, that you um, presented, John, it, it focused a lot on sort of all of the money that we need to solve all of these problems. And there is a need for money, but I mean, the problems go way beyond just money. And that's where we get to this whole is issue of you know, systemic and structural change. And you can throw all the money at you, that you want at these problems, but you know, the, the foundation is, is rotten unless you make some changes there as well. talked uh, quite a bit about the Stiglitz Commission throughout the um, last day, and I just wondered um, how the G24, uh, whether the G24 has its reaction, especially to the idea of creating um, a UN-based coordinating system that would really uh, try to coordinate all of the activities through um, really an inclusive approach involving every, every country in the UN. for Soren. Uh, I was just wondering if you could speak to how you would like to see the G20 and the G7 um, engage with civil society on, on more of a, a consistent, permanent basis. I want to add to, to that question uh, to Soren. 
also the role of the anti-movements, like the social movement, indigenous people that are thinking outside the main box, not only reform, but really alternatives to uh, uh, what is going on. Maybe we can start with, sorry? Give me a moment to think. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so who wants to? Well, I'll try. Um, I think in terms of uh, uh, the interaction of the G20 or the G7 or the G27 or whatever with, um, with civil society, um, as Martin Kaur from Third World Network is fond of pointing out, uh, he says he, he's tried to contact the G7, but he can't find their offices. Um, and I think that I, I don't see the prospect of the G20 becoming a different kind of organization that will have a secretariat, that will have uh, a kind of stable um, uh, idea be, or stable um, staff or anything like that. Um, I think that, in a sense, that's the problem. Uh, and it reflects the fact that, that these countries forming the G20 or the L21 or whatever we're going to be calling it, um, were not mandated for this task. Um, and therefore, they have a kind of ambiguous status. So there's always been something uh, ambiguous, I think, about the interactions uh, between the G7 and, and civil society in the past, the G8, and now the G20. Um, and in fact, I think most of those interactions turn into interactions with individual governments, uh, which are, as has been pointed out, the accountable um, uh, figures. Until we introduce some kind of accountability for the G20, which would involve uh, any number of the reforms that have been discussed by various people uh, during the last day and a half, um, I'm not certain that uh, we're going to see uh, an opening for more productive uh, civil society G20 relations. I think the, the, the start has to be on the structural side. Um, on the other question about uh, some of the uh, movements uh, that are trying to think further outside of the box than, uh, than some of the, as I called them, wonky uh, NGOs are, um, I think we're referring here to not only indigenous rights groups, but also, uh, for example, Via Campesina, the uh, peasant farmers organizations, uh, and so on. Um, these are the organizations that sometimes get referred to as social movements and um, uh, really form, in many ways, uh, the kind of popular support for the agenda that NGOs at least see themselves pushing. Um, the relationships uh, between uh, the NGOs that kind of cross that line into the insider uh, uh, strategies and, uh, and these more outside-the-box groups uh, has not always been an easy one, but I think that we have reached uh, a, a state of, of pretty good cooperation now. I know that, uh, for example, Via Campesina uh, draws a lot of its information from, uh, from many of the NGOs, and the NGOs do likewise in terms of trying to uh, determine the needs and, and um, uh, agendas of, of small farmers. Uh, we will always have more to do in this realm, and uh, I think that with the climate 
debate, we're going to see a lot more of this with indigenous groups in particular uh, as carbon trading and uh, the uh, forest carbon partnership uh, of the World Bank and so on continue to develop. We're going to see uh, some conflicts between uh, some of the established conservation and environmental groups and uh, some of the um, uh, some of the indigenous groups, but also directly with the World Bank and, and donor governments. Um, and I think those are going to be productive in a way. I mean, they will be conflicts, but they're going to be conflicts that we need to have. Uh, and uh, I look forward to some of the fireworks because if we have really good fireworks, we might come out with some solutions that get outside of the boxes we've gotten ourselves into. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Uh, regardless of what the G24 thinks, I wanted to just read you what the G20 thinks, <laughs> just as a start. And it says, um, uh, it says, where does it say? It says, uh, we decided to, you know, that we are going to be the premier uh, forum uh, for in, uh, international economic cooperation. Uh, and as long as the G20 leaders think that, in some sense, it makes it, of course, very difficult to establish anything that is in the, in the line right now of the Global Economic Cooperation Council. Uh, however, the idea that and the, the, the principles that are embedded in that idea are very useful and important in pushing the G20 in the direction where it eventually becomes uh, what we are talking about. And I think that's, uh, that's something that I, th I think the Stiglitz Commission has done a great service on, which is to lay out a vision of what a global governance structure should look like. Uh, I, I should also say that uh, the finance minister's uh, uh, process um, you know, has, uh, uh, in some sense, established, has a, had a longer history. It's established certain now structures that work. But in both the leaders and the finance ministers, as I was arguing, the main challenge, you know, if it's going to be legitimate, is how to deal with inclusion. In Istanbul, uh, there was a lot of tension between those who felt signatories to the G20 and those who felt that they had, you know, the Jose Antonio view, which is, you know, we didn't sign in the dotted line in Pittsburgh. There's nothing that, that uh, binds us. Uh, to the language uh, agreed upon. And why that matters is because on some of the issues on which Pittsburgh punted, meaning they were left intentionally vague and ambiguous, the language was exactly the same in the IMFC and the DC as they were in the G20 communique. So it's very, very important to find ways, therefore, for the G20 to become more inclusive than it is at the moment. Thank you. Last word. Well, <laughs> I like Fraser's last word that it's not about the money, and I'm going to remember him speaking on behalf of all NGOs. It's not about the money, and you don't need the money. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I had I was going to work that into the budget somehow. Um, just uh, just quickly on the the World Bank. You know, I think everyone realizes that it's a financial institution for, first and foremost, and no one wants to put at risk the AAA credit rating. So that means progressive change is really what's needed, slow metric progressive change. The, the other thing is that many countries on the board represent a constituency that includes developing countries, including our own. And, and, and in the dynamic of the board, there's a much 
there's, there's much of that, you know, we uh, intrinsically understanding what the needs are, speaking on behalf of. So you, things never come to a vote, or I think in the, the, the history of the IBRD, there's hardly been ever vote, any, any votes. Um, and it's just something to keep in mind as you characterize and think about the sort of north-south sort of divide, which we, which we worry about as these governance and capital increases go on. The other issue is the IDA issue. I mean, really, I think we're talking about is IDA and IDA countries. A lot of thinking about how to get uh, borrowing countries more involved in the IDA discussions in the, the midterm review and the replenishments to make sure that their, their voices are heard there and how to in include their perspective in the next round. Exactly 5.15, so let me thank the panelists and you for your attention. And